Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host and decolonized wellness and body image coach, Dahlia Kinsey. I help queer folks of color heal their struggles with shame and self-acceptance through nutrition and self-care so they can live the most fierce, liberated, and joyful version of their lives. Most of us have experienced being otherized and feeling separated from or disconnected from the world around us. Today's guest is no exception, but elements of her story struck me as so extreme. And I realized that part of that is linked to the fact that I belong to a large ethnic minority in the U.S. And I was raised by people who shared the same racial identity as myself. I, like most people, simultaneously hold marginalized and privileged identities. I never realized how truly horrific it must be to be in an environment where no one understands your lived experience. Of course, I've been in spaces where very few people understand my lived experience, or maybe during the business day, during the school day, nobody got it. But at least when I got home, there were people there who could mirror back to me that I wasn't being oversensitive and that what I was living through wasn't fair, was indeed painful, but was survivable. The transracial adoptee experience is really a fascinating one. I'm so glad that Amazon was able to take out the time to share her story with us. And also to remind us that there still is so much work that needs to be done to protect AAPI people around us as they live through another period of intense hostility against them. All right. Let's get into it. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. So excited to have you on the show. I've been listening to your interviews all over the place. And I think your story is fascinating. And even though it it's very unique, I think so many people can relate to how you must have felt growing up having that difficulty finding your place. A lot of queer folks experience that feeling of not belonging and a lot of folks of color experience that same sensation. But your story in particular sounds like an extreme version of what a lot of us have gone through. So can you tell me what it was like for you being raised in Australia not looking like most Australians. I was a transracial adoptee and, you know, we have this issue already with white supremacy when you're coming from your own native background. But imagine, you know, growing up in it and living in it. You know, transracial adoption is such a difficult form 
of adoption because you're taking a child from a different background and trying to assimilate it into yours. But, you know, as I grew up, you know, identity is so important. You take for granted that you wake up in the morning and you see someone that looks like you. But imagine tomorrow for 24 hours, everyone didn't look like you. Everywhere you went, no one looked like you and they never acknowledged your difference and your culture and your identity. I mean, I grew up in a time in Australia when Asians were just coming into the country and, you know, the government was like the Trump administration. It was very vocal of how it felt about foreigners and particularly the Asian community because Australia is the closest Western country to the continent of Asia. And, you know, we had different Asian groups coming in, the Vietnamese, Japanese, the Chinese, and the government and people said publicly, we don't want to be Asianized. We don't want to be invaded by the Asian community. So it was very confusing for me living in a society that hated me so much for being me and me just not understanding why. And at the same time, as a small child, being also confused about how I felt inside with my sexuality, but not having a name for how I felt. You know, I never saw an Asian person in the media at all. I never saw an LGBTQ person in the media. So I never had anyone that represented who I was. I had to try and navigate this from my own experience, which was really difficult. I suffered a terrible amount of bullying as a kid and discrimination and a horrendous amount of racism. I had, you know, so many Asian slurs that have been said at me. And it's traumatic as a child. It's like that flight or fight mode that doesn't stop because you're constantly on guard. I remember an incident when I had to walk through um, a tunnel to the train station as a kid. And the tunnel just had all these horrible Asian slurs inside the tunnel and on different buildings. And I remember asking the train master if he could paint it, if they could paint it over because I found it very traumatic. And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, it's going to be up there the next day. We don't bother anymore. So this kind of blase-ness with racism and, you know, kids used to hide at the end of the tunnel around the corner and jump out at Asian kids. So there was kind of always that kind of feeling as you're turning the corner that a group of kids would jump out at you. And they did numerous times. And I was kind of bullied a lot at school. I didn't really have too many friends. So I used to go to the library as a kid. My only kind of, you know, finding a, a way to find people that were different was through reading. You know, I read about Walt Disney and I read about these, you know, ingenious people who are extremely creative that created different things from their mind and this kind of gave me a place where I could just kind of lose myself and go into this dream world where I could create some kind of possibility for myself you know I never met a Vietnamese person until in my late teens I always had a very bad image of being Asian because of what society told me and I just remember as a kid 
you know, going to, you know, into the bathroom and literally trying to scrub the Asian away and looking in the mirror thinking, gosh, I'm still Asian. And for many transracial adoptees, we're brought up as whites as well, which is very confusing when your whole sense of identity is erased, but then you look in the mirror and you see something else or when people talk disparagingly about Asian people. In your presence. In your presence, because you've been, Mm. they've somehow erased your Asian-ness and brought you up as part of their community. So they, I mean, it's so strange to verbalize this to someone that they literally don't see you anymore for who you are, but you see yourself when you look in the mirror. And I remember as a kid, my father driving through the Vietnamese part of town it was summer and it was sunny day, the windows were down. And as we stopped at the traffic lights, he said, I think you should wind your windows up because this is an unsafe area. You know, it's Vietnamese, they live in the bad part of town. You know, a Vietnamese person could, you know, grab you or steal something from the back of your car or just hurt you in some way. And I just remember thinking, but I'm Vietnamese. Like, and be, being very confused by the, that comments, even now, I, I, you know, I meet parents who have transracial adoptee children, and they still struggle because there's a lack of support network. And obviously, you always think that you're doing the best thing for your child where, you know, you think, well, love is enough. And it's like, well, actually, love isn't enough. You need to celebrate their identity and their culture because it's just so important because it's so much of who I am like that's something that can't be taken away from me I ended up in sports as a kid because I wanted to find that sense of community you know I struggled with my sexuality I was getting bullied and then when I went into sports as a child particularly team sports you know being the only Asian kid in sports I instantly saw then how the sports community treated Asian people that you see today in terms of, you know, Asian people are slow, they're geeky, you know, we're not built like other, you know, people or other ethnic backgrounds. We're not Were there any other Asian kids in your school system by the time you were old enough to participate in sports? There were, see, the, the thing about being a transracial adoptee is that you're in this kind of odd limbo where there were Asian kids from Asia who had come over into the country because of their parents working, but I I was just too different for them because they see that you're just really complete. The the comment is, is that you're you're yellow on the outside, but you're a banana Hmm. inside because they can't understand like, well, why aren't you eating Asian food? Why don't you speak our language? And they also stuck to their own groups as right, well from the countries of origin okay. yes so you you kind of just kind of felt like an outsider and then I mean transracial adoption they had no idea what that was like they, they, they couldn't get their head around you know why would a white person adopt an Asian kid what like you know it doesn't happen in the Asian community because relatives just look after children yeah it doesn't really happen and then obviously your white friends you know, they see you as white, but with the wave of racism, they kind of turned on me as well. So for me, my kind of haven, I thought, well, I'll go into sports, but I was just 
bullied in sports by my team members, by um, my coach, by the other teams. Um, I loved sprinting, but I was the slowest in sprinting because the other girls had longer legs. They were just faster, just the way it was. And, you know, they would tease me as they would kind of come around the sprinting circle. And, you know, my um, coach pulled me aside and said, you know, Asian kids aren't designed for sprinting. You would be much better in long distance running because you're just slow. And Asian mm. kids, you know, just a slow, you're geeky. You don't have, you know, your limbs are different. You're phys physically incapable of this kind of speed. So I was pushed out of sprinting and I ended up, and I kind of enjoyed long distance running because I actually was good <laughs> at it. So I kind of, I ended up kind of feeding into that narrative, but also it was then an individual sport. So it was something that I can do alone. When you look back as an adult, do you think that some of the things that you were told repeatedly had a big influence on what you were physically capable of doing? Because we all hear a lot of assumptions about particular racial groups having an aptitude in one sport or another. But then when we look at race science, almost all of that has been debunked. And so yeah. there is really no such thing. There's no scientific reason to believe that somebody with this skin color would be better at a certain sport. But it seems like sometimes when you're just repeatedly told something, it becomes real. And, yeah. and then there are those coincidental things where you're told like, oh, you, your people can't do this. And then coincidentally, you happen to be better at the other thing that they recommended. How do you process all that when you look back? Do you think the messaging is affecting people's ability in sports it, it really is i mean you know when you're when when i speak to so many asian adults now around sports because that's my background i will always hear the same story that oh i love to play sports but i was bullied at sports i was told i wasn't good enough then i dropped out as a kid and i never got back to it and until now like i'm just playing tennis socially you know when you're a child you're like a sponge and, you know, if someone's repeating something over and over again, then you will just start believing it. But also I had no choice because I was pushed out, even if I wanted to stay in the sports that I loved and do the things that I did. You know, when an adult is just kind of pushing you out, you, you know, when you're like a seven-year-old kid, you, you, don't then, you don't have that voice. But, you know, I, I do think, I mean, we look at what's happening now with the anti-trans bills that whole thing around you know trans athletes are better that particularly you know but it's this continual just policing around women mm. not trans men but if you say it I mean and I think this comes down to when you look at hate you know you say it's enough times people will believe it's that it's it's the repetition of saying it Con consistently you know but I went into bodybuilding at six very unusual for a girl for a kid for an Asian kid and that really helped change my mindset and it was really just by accident you know there was some dumbbells lying around the house I just kind of thought why not I had no idea what I was doing I would literally do a hundred dumbbell curls a day plus crunches and sit-ups. But I noticed that my I got stronger, my body started to change, and also my mind felt 
different as well. It, it was a sport in a way that other sports didn't do for me because I had very low self-worth as a child, just this constant kind of beating down on someone's worth. And, you know, I had mental health issues. I, I hated being Asian, you know, obviously very confused about my sexuality and I just needed something to latch onto and bodybuilding gave me that sense of confidence but it threw me very quickly into then the adult male sports arena and I started going to the gym you know well, I was kind of under 10 when I started going to the gym, a local gym. Moment. Were any other children allowed in there or it, there was just no rule about kids? I mean, now, now you have changed gyms, like a seven-year-old kid couldn't go into an LA fitness. And just right. go, you know, I'm not paying, but I'm coming in for an hour and go to work out. Where is your mother? You're absolutely not. But, you know, it was literally just a local gym run by a guy who you know lived locally he said yes I think in his mind he was like she's only coming once okay that's yes yeah like (laughs) yes he just let me in like didn't didn't care so wow this was a different time because just think of all the liability concerns people would have now (laughs) they'd be like absolutely not you're not coming in here you're gonna break your little fingers no you know, and then my mother used to use it as a babysitting. Like she would be like, okay, I'm going to the shops. You can just like knowing that I just wouldn't leave. And okay. I just remembered just kind of walking in. And I think at that age as well, because I had obviously no sense of fear or concept or anything. It was like, oh, this looks interesting. Uh, I had no idea what I was was doing. And I spent, I remember the first time just spending a few hours just kind of walking around. And I think what I noticed as well, it was just like, hmm, there were no women here, just all ah, yeah. men, all adult men. And I think they just kind of thought, who is this like random Asian child that's <laughs> walked in? I think in their mind, they must have thought, oh, the mother must be at like an aerobic class. So the child was just kind of like just uh. wandering around. So at first, I think no one kind of thought anything, but then I started to come back. And I think that's when it started to change because men felt so threatened by like this eight-year-old kid coming into their space and you know this whole thing of you know Trump to the Trump administration around the locker room talk I mean I experienced so much misogyny and as a child people still targeted those types of comments as as a child I mean I look back and I'm horrified by what men said to me Wow. Then, like, you would never think of saying that to anyone, but let alone, like, a a kid. And they would say it, you know, they would come up to me and say it to my face, or then I would be, like, doing something, doing an exercise beside them, and they'd be saying it to their friends, but me just standing there. So I could always... it was always in hearing distance. Was um, it more like hypersexualized things or was it more just disrespect like women don't belong in this type of space or a mix of the two? It was the mix of the two. Like if I could go back and start thinking in my mind, like if I could take you back into that moment, you would be horrified. Like I look back and think how horrified that I even 
went into that space and then received that much of misogyny and sexism. But yeah, it was just horrible kind of locker room yeah. talk. And I, and I learned a lot about men. I mean, I spent so much time just kind of sitting and ob- observing them and thinking, you know, how does one gain respect in these very male-dominated environments? And as a child, my kind of only thinking that came out of it was that, gosh, men are such simple creatures. Like, they don't really talk that much about many different topics. It's usually, like, two topics that they talk about. It was really quite fascinating as a child observing this. And I, you know, I, but I loved it so much. It, the, the sport gave me so much self-confidence and belief in myself. And I think it was something that I chose that I could do on my own, but I had to make that decision because I was encountering just so much misogyny. And And this was pre-earbuds, right? So you wouldn't have even been able to block people out. I mean, maybe you could have worn a Walkman or something. What was the tech option like for blocking people out? But you, you need to remember that I'm like an eight-year-old kid, so I don't have the sense of awareness that you have now when you go into a gym and, and a man kind of says something. You know, there's a reason why when a woman goes into the gym, she's like got headphones on, she's got a book. It's this whole right. blocking out and creating this wall that men don't seem to understand that this is, you know, this is the reason why when you enter into a gym, you see more women on the cardio than in the weights room. And if they go to the weights area, they usually do it in groups because of the fact that just men, I mean, even now as an adult, there are some days where I just think the weights area is just so busy because I know exactly what it's going to be like. If as soon as I walk into that space, the amount of guarding that one has Mm. to do to prevent men from just coming up to you constantly or even just the, yeah. the way that they, they look at you because you have all these mirrors and you can see that and as a child you know I was there was there was nothing I didn't even think that I could do something in my mind was how do I stand my ground and I spend a lot of time observing like I have mirrors they look I can see them watching me do everything and it was just one simple thing I had to lift as much as them or more than them to gain respect because of how I observed how they were with Mm. each other. And, you know, if I wanted to stay in this sport, I had to stand my ground. And it took me a long time, but I think after a while they noticed that one, she's not leaving, she just keeps coming back. (laughs) And two, because I was so young, I had no awareness of strength. Like a guy would go to machine and he'd have a hundred pounds. So in my mind, I'd be like, oh, I can do that as well. And then wonder why the machine fell on me. Oh because, my goodness. How I, did you do safety wise? Like physically, it sounds like because you were so young, you didn't feel physically unsafe around so many men. But then when it comes to injury and trying to match what a man could do, how did you not get hurt? I, I only remember one incident. I was on a cable and I was kind of doing a tricep push down incorrectly. And the only came around and said, you're not doing that correctly. And he noticed I was like trying to lift like half the stack because I noticed another guy lifting half the stack. And he, then he just put it to like the top weight and he goes, try it now. And I was like, oh my God, it's so light. And then I tried to go back down to like, that was my, my 
only interaction with the owner of trying to show and he wasn't even trying to show me something correctly he just kind of said to me you're doing it incorrectly and just lifted it put it you know put the peg to like the top plates and then just walked off wow I I learned through watching men I just I did a lot of observing where I would literally just sit around and watch I mean yes there are incidences and I remember very clearly I went to there was a guy using a squat machine and he must have had I think 40 pounds on the squat machine and he was obviously doing it easily and then he left but left the plates there and I thought oh I can do that as soon as I went on the squat machine fell on me and I went right down to the ground I kind of had to try and crawl I I still remember that moment of just trying to crawl out of the squat machine because it was so heavy I just had no concept and I think it was actually a really good age for me within the sport because I had no concept I had absolutely no fear and I think if I did it as a teenager because of that you know critical and natural thinking and awareness it probably would have been a little bit harder for me but I also spent a lot of time in because I had no idea what I was really I was doing on the weights floor I spent a lot of time in reception reading the bodybuilding magazine so I learned you know that was my anatomy and physiology in terms of you know going through how to do exercises correctly because I just read about all of that through the magazines that showed you all these different exercises I read about these stories and you know I latched on to and it he became my role model, but it was so far removed from who I was, but his, it was his difference, Arnold Schwarzenegger, because through all the bodybuilding magazines, I would read about this person that I couldn't pronounce who came from this faraway land, but used, this, mm. used the platform of sports to get where he wanted to get and have conversations through sports. And it was that difference of seeing someone who looked different had a strange name had a different accent came from a faraway place but used that difference to celebrate himself and to levitate himself and I think you know that was for me my epiphany moment where I realized that I needed to start loving who I was and I could my difference was something to be celebrated not something to be hated and I think that gave me so much confidence in myself besides you know doing bodybuilding as well and I you know I started to compete as a teenager and yes throughout the years I I did gain respect from the men because obviously I just did not leave and I just made a point of lifting as much as I could so I was stronger than them and it actually was a very good sport for me because I realized I was naturally very strong but I think as well just that visual presence of seeing men lift a lot and I thought this is how I'm going to gain respect from them that's really really fascinating because even now I mean of course recently haven't been to the gym but as an adult at the gym when I was a younger woman the issue was just the harassment and people constantly trying to chat you up or help you when you don't need help things like that but as I got a little older and maybe started looking more matronly i don't know then people just seem irritated that you're in their space so the messaging always is like if a woman isn't there to be 
sexualized or objective, if you're not available sexually, then it's like, get out of the way, right? Type of thing, which is such a common theme with male dominated spaces and finding men getting sassy or aggressive. If you move the, the pins down, like a lot of gyms have their own culture and they'll tell you like, oh, well, when you're done, you need to just leave it as you found it. And then there are others where you just leave it at the weight that you were working at and the next person moves it. The way they huff and puff when they have to move the weight up because it was at a lower weight that's safe for me to lift. Just the drama and being a paying customer and not being there as a child, just all of the the disrespect like the assumption that this space belongs to us when it's not a gym dedicated to men, they just dominate that part of the gym. That has been a real issue. But as an adult, like you say, you have all these ways of putting up the barriers. You know how to speak up for yourself or you know when you don't have the energy for that and you can put your headset in. I just, it's fascinating to think of a child going in and navigating that space. And to be inspired by someone who has such a different background from you, but still his visibility was important. He kept his name as it was at let people just finally figure out how to say it correctly. Right. That's another way that people erase people's uniqueness when they're coming from other cultures is refusing to learn how to say people's name correctly. I love the idea that you could be an inspiration to a child who isn't coming from exactly the same background as you, but just being visible and being different could be a life changer for someone. That's just, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that kind of you go talk about you know what it's like to be in the gym it's like I experienced all of that but I was like eight years old and when those things were said to me I was just like you know to me it's like gosh that's 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 very horrible obviously I would look at them but then I'd go and get the plates and you know still continue and I think you know that was such that was the irritation and the threat of whatever we say she's not leaving like we're going to a place that's so misogynistic, so sexist, so horrible. If those men said those things to you in the gym today, they would be absolutely banned. It would probably be on the front cover of the local mm. newspaper. But, you know, for them, it was, I could see it in their eyes as a kid that they're thinking, that I, and I can see it now that regardless of what we say, regardless of how horrible the place we go, she's not leaving It's fascinating to realize that you had that type of power as a child, because I would think that even with the bullies, that that is disheartening to them to find that there's some people you just aren't going to be able to break, that you can keep it going with all the racial slurs you can come up with. But, you know, you, you can't get rid of everyone, number one, and no matter how much abuse you heap on some people, they're going to find a way to understand their own value, to understand their own worth and be unchanged by your abuse. Yeah. I mean, I think I was just very resilient as a kid. But then looking back, the bullying in the school system and how I was treated there actually was the one thing that would make me cry at night at home. But going to the gym and receiving the misogyny and sexism 
because I was lifting weights as well and obviously my blood was pumping and I can see myself changing how confident I was, it just kind of made me angrier in terms of wanting to stand my ground and, and own this space because this is something that I just loved and this was the one thing that wasn't going to be taken away from me. And I think because I had this big why, it kept me going as as well and obviously I had no money so I couldn't buy the bodybuilding magazine so that was another thing that when I go to the gym I could sit down and and, and continually read the story of Arnold Schwarzenegger it's like a book that you know every month like a, a different story would come out that I would learn about and then you know I, I also noticed that a lot of the bodybuilding magazines also started doing stories of you know Hollywood stars and celebrities and athletes so it became you know a learning experience that I wanted to go back because I wanted to continue to read and learn as, as well. Um, Why you know, do you and, think the bullying at school was harder for you? Was it just that there wasn't anything else in that environment to help you feel empowered? Like the way the lifting was having that physical effect on you? I think so. And also I didn't want to be there. Hmm. It, either and I didn't feel yeah there was nothing to latch onto that kind of made me feel empowered where in the gym it was it it became something that I just loved and that it gave me the confidence and I felt empowered and then obviously there was a section of you know being in the reception and the magazines and stuff and it became like you know you're not going to take away the one thing that I love from from me when Um, it comes to the lack of visibility when did you realize that you could be a professional athlete and that you could make this thing that you love a big part of your adult life? Really through my reading of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think if it wasn't for going to the gym and reading about Arnold Schwarzenegger, I never thought I could make an impact. And I knew as a kid, I wanted to make an impact. I had no idea how or what that impact would be. Initially, it was because of being hated so much of it because I was Asian. And I wanted the world to know that Asian people were great people, just like anyone else. We just happened to look a little bit different from you. And then, you know, as I entered into sports and read about how Arnold and other athletes through reading the magazines use sport as that platform, it, it started to make me think differently that I could use sports as for something and create an impact. And I remember as well, once the gym owner said to me, he said, you know, you should start competing because you, you have that kind of competitiveness in you as well. And then when I read about him competing, about how he used being a competitive athlete to lift himself up and see the world and do all these amazing things, I thought, you know, this is my path but I had no idea the path was through sports and I mean athlete activism didn't exist or you know any any of that stuff yeah oh that is so fascinating (laughs) that Arnold was such an inspiration I love that how did you get to the point where because I heard you mention initially you were thinking this could be a way kind of to showcase or validate your humanity as a person who was being subjected to a lot of abuse simply for being Asian. When did you start to feel a shift in working through your own internalized anti-Asianness so that your work isn't about proving your humanity because you 
know that that isn't your responsibility. Like people need to get their racism under control. It shouldn't be on you to prove that you are worthy. When did that start to shift? When I started competing as an athlete, because then it became more than just, you know, this. It it was more about how do I use the platform of sports for, for something, but I'm not quite sure what that's is through just kind of having conversations through sports so you know I competed and then I started to qualify as a strength and conditioning coach and through that I could see how sport changed people if they had sports in their life but you know it's like until you can see some kind of pathway to how you use it you're not quite sure like how do you use sports for something that's beyond obviously you know talking about race right you know and I've kind of always gone back to sports through you know I think sports for me was definitely my survival mechanism without having a lifetime of sports I wouldn't be the person that I am today I mean you know when I was a young adult I experienced homeless for a number of years living in and out of shelter, you know, having severe mental health, feeling very suicidal, living in poverty and seeing how, you know, you're treated when you're on the margins of society. But, you know, I've always found sports as a haven to be able to, however difficult, just that mindset to be able to pull myself out. And it was the hardest thing that I ever did. And I had a nervous breakdown doing it, but still, having that mindset. I mean, even through the pandemic, it's been difficult for everyone, but I keep going back to my mindset of sports, of going past difficult situations, of, you know, going past the pain barrier when your your body is in so much pain, but you need to keep pushing because you know if you're competing, there's someone else <laughs> working twice as hard as you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it only makes sense to me that you would have have a period of time where the stress just broke you down because the amount of abuse that you were subjected to is far beyond anything I've ever experienced. I mean, bullying here or there, but nothing that intensive. And I was raised in an area with a fairly high Black population. I never felt like that level of fear walking home from school knowing that people habitually were jumping out to harass and bully people who look like me that you survived all that it almost seems like of course you had to have a point at which it was just too much and with no adults to support and guide you through all of that stress having to do it all by yourself that's just that's would be too much for anyone how did you start to incorporate the multiple levels of support that you needed to get well like the physical activity and probably counseling and other things did you have to create the the structure for that too on your own or since you were an adult were you able to get access to people who had more of an understanding of what you'd been through and what kind of support would make sense for your experience you know, I never had that kind of support. And, you know, I really struggled as a child and the family that I lived with couldn't see the racism that I was experiencing because when you're brought up white in a racist background, I mean, it's like we talk about white supremacy now, you think, well, you know, 
how can they not say BLM? How can they not say all this stuff? It's like, but when it's not a part of your life, you just don't see it. And when it's never, you've never experienced it as part of your life, you, it's very hard for you to then see it unless you really truly want to take that leap forward and really learn from that. And so I, I never had support. And I remember as a kid, you know, talking about you know the amount of racism and stuff and I don't think they knew what to do either but they didn't really see it as an issue because you know the conversation that I had with the train master about the racial slurs towards Asian people in the tunnel like he just didn't see that as an issue anymore because he's like well it's going to be there the next day so we we just don't care anymore that kind of blase-ness of everyday racism but what it means to a person of color and that multiple layers in terms of our you know beating down at our mental health and I really did struggle as a, a child you know I suffered from anorexia and bulimia I cried a lot at home but it was so personal and so alone as well no one else knew I would have horrible moments where you know I'd have breakfast and then just throw up before school because I just couldn't face it any more and you know bodybuilding became my support network because it became like suddenly my entire world started to revolve around going to the gym and bodybuilding because it was the one thing that was lifting me up and keeping me sane yeah yeah when did you start to feel that you wanted to work to help other children who had experienced similar things, not exactly the same, but when did your interest in advocacy come into your life? Was there something that happened that triggered that for you that now I'm in a better place, I'm an adult, I can create safe spaces for myself and I can even work on doing that for other people? I never saw myself as an advocate at, at all going back a number of years there's no way I could share my story like mm. this it took me so long to get to that point where I could just verbalize it to the the world it was actually when I started to go back to Vietnam many years ago and I just had this idea that I would start sharing my story to people and that was my only idea and maybe someone would listen it so i started just randomly calling up embassies and consulates and asking if people would see me and then i would just sit down and share the experience of what it is to be asian and queer and you know being bullied and and how sport saved me and it just kind of started from there and I, I, I never really kind of had this epiphany moment where i was like now i'm going to become an advocate <laughs> it it and, and i think for many advocates, it's an organic process through the journey of our life, of what we've been through. And me as an adult looking at sports over the last, you know, five or so years and thinking it's still the same. You know, we don't have the pro- professional Asian athletes that we should when we do. And I always cite people like the basketball player, Jeremy Lin, who's one of the best basketball players that the U.S. has had, but he can cite a lifetime of racism mm. throughout his childhood, college, and even 
now and most recently be, being called coronavirus on the, the court and just kind of seeing that, wow. you know, that. It, 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 it hasn't changed and, you know, it may have felt like it's shifted, but there's so much more work that needs to be done because I keep seeing myself and what's happening right now and thinking that I now have a platform to be able to say something. I'm not competing competitively at the moment, so I don't have sponsors and I'm worried that, you know, I say the wrong thing or anything like that. And I think, you know, so many athletes who happen to be Asian, you know, they don't go into sports to be an activist. They go in it for the love of it. But then I can work on the other side around athletes' act activism. And then I look at, you know, the, the amounts of bullying and, and racism that, you know, kids that are seen to be different, you know, we see this with all the anti-trans bills. We still haven't broken that cycle. And I think, you know, if I have a platform and a voice, you know, I should say something and I should do something because it's for me it's about how do we ch change a generation to make it better for each generation that comes after yeah the amount of damage the psychological damage that bullying does is really intense and it wasn't until the early 2000s that it seemed like adults were starting to realize that that's something you have to take responsibility for but there was no recourse for children who are being bullied in the 80s, the 90s. So even that is a recent development. But you find that the members of society that the adults at large are still biased against are receiving the minimal amount of protection or no protection at all. If the bullying is relating to an identity that let's say the government is basically also openly disrespecting this group of people the protection is just not there so it's so interesting to me that you pointed out that the government was also facilitating and encouraging anti-asian sentiment at the time that you were experiencing such a high level of bullying in school so it really seems like the layers to this are it, it's a lot. What, where can we have the most impact as individual people when it comes to fight, fighting anti-Asian sentiment around us? Sure. I mean, it, it is a lot because, you know, when you have the government saying anti-Asian things, then society feels like, well, I didn't like them anyway, but now I've been given a ticket to be able to say it publicly. So then as a kid, you're thinking, well, who's my support? network because my support network should be my teachers and you know social system they're bullying I mean I remember once as a kid I must have been like seven or something you know I was the only Asian kid in class my teacher made me stand up and in front of everyone said this is what failure looked like and at most in life I will be the child that fails and all the kids laughed at me and I just remember thinking that oh god I can't cry because everyone's laughing at me including the teacher and uh, at, whoa the teacher was laughing, laughing as well as a, and then as I sat down the teacher threw the blackboard eraser at my head and I still remember to this oh, day the, the wooden bit just kind of hitting me just there <sighs> and thinking I would never feel this humiliated ever again and nor will I ever want any child to experience this kind of humiliation so it's like well where do I go to if the system is bullying me you you don't have right. any 
outlet. That's why I would go home and cry because I'm thinking, outlet. oh, wow. And, and that that's is why, so intense. And that's why bodybuilding helped, saved me in terms of just finding that place, even though I encountered it, it's interesting because even though I encountered terrible amounts of misogyny and sexism, which was just as bad as the bullying and racism, I had this big why of why I wanted to, to be there because it empowered me and how it made me feel in this learning experience, which then helped me kind of overcome all of that as, as well. And I think the difference is, is that I noticed that as I gained respect from the men, misogyny and sexism started to die down. Whereas regardless of what I did, you know, in society or school, the bullying racism didn't die mm. down. So it was a very different thing for me. And the approach didn't work with that, but it did with the other. That's just <laughs> such an intense level. Of, so the teacher called you up out of nowhere. Like nothing had happened. This is just a random attack. So there's no warning for you. So you could be attacked at any time by teachers and students. And you had to deal with that for the duration of your public school experience. Yes. And, you know, and also, you know, a government that didn't like you. I mean, you know, when I look at the pandemic of what the Trump administration have done, you know, inciting this anti-Asian racism. I mean, if we look back in history in the US, you know, we can go back to the 1930s of different moments in American history where Asian people have been targeted and used as scapegoats. But, you know, if we're looking now in the 21st century, you're having a government that is attaching an ethnicity to a virus. Mm -hmm. And what that does is specifically target that community for hate and we are seeing this wave of hate I mean people may laugh and think but it did come from China so I can call it the China virus and I can call it the Kung flu virus but you don't understand that repercussion because it's the repetition right. of then attaching an assistancy to a virus and then wrapping it up in hate which is you know the, the struggle and because people can't you know, tell Asian people apart and we seem to be this whole monolith community, then we're all targeted. And it's very bad at the moment in the US, particularly towards, I mean, it died down. It seemed to have died down at the end of the year, but then, it, you know, at the beginning of this year, it spiked in a very bad way and we're dying now. Did this surprise you at all? Like as a child, did you imagine that things might be better for Asian people in the States? Or were you aware, even as a kid, that this racism against Asian folks was an issue here too? I lived in a very bubble world. And, and this is a kind of a story of how my world was very much a bubble. So as I started to become a teenager, I started to go into the inner city to go to the gyms then. And it was like my first exposure to meet you know, African-Americans that lived in the inner city, but also, you know, trained at that gym. And it was the only community that was nice to mm. me, the only community. And I used to kind of scratch my head of thinking, why aren't people like, and they would obviously tell me the stories of, you know, what it's like to be black. And I, could, I, could, I couldn't wrap my head around 
Oh, these, so these were black people who had moved to Australia for some reason. Yes. And also some black people from the Caribbean and mm. stuff. But they would start to tell me the, the history of the, you know, the black community. But I lived in such a bubble. I mean, obviously, the terrible atrocities towards the Aboriginals, but I you know, I hadn't right. really met that many, you know, outside of Aboriginals, any kind of African-American people or Caribbean people. And when I met them, I couldn't understand why I had come across a community that was nice to me. It was like the only community that was nice. And I couldn't understand why the Black community had gone through such atrocities because I had no idea of the history as, as well. So in my bubble mind, I'm like, but you're like the nicest people I've ever met. And like, you're the first community <laughs> that I've ever met. That's so nice to me. I can't understand why people are so nasty to such nice people. Like that's <laughs> what I had in my mind. And I actually, at that moment as well, I always thought that whatever I do in this world, I always want to make sure I support the black community because I need to support the community that was there for me when I was younger, the only community oh, that was beautiful. there for me. So I didn't really have that much an idea. And, you know, the, also, the one thing that people need to understand is the stereotype of Asian people. Like, you know, we, we're, as soon as I'm born, I'm part of this invisible model minority race that mm. has been pushed through white supremacy that pits, you know, people of color against each other and puts Asian people on this pedestal with this false proximity to whiteness that this is the good community and everyone right. else has to aspire to this good community. I mean, when you watch terrestrial TV, whenever you see like a doctor or a journalist or someone in a safe role, it's always an Asian person. That's a good point. Like next time you watch a commercial, the, the doctor's always Asian. Or if there's a TV show and they have an Asian person, it will always be the doctor or the teacher or someone who's in a very safe role. So it's very perpetrated that we're like safe people, we're harmless, we're geeky, we're quietly spoken, nothing happens to us. So what surprised me was I, I wasn't prepared for the wave of racism towards Asian community with the pandemic because no one could have thought that a government, I mean, I suppose we should have realized with the Trump administration, but it's not at the forefront of your head that I honestly was kind of shocked to, to hear it repeatedly and to hear how people weren't checking it and stopping it. And I think this is where the fact that people are always, or in the States, people have suppressed Asian voices for so long and also people because they are just trying to get by and survive don't speak about their experiences. I did not know how intense our history with anti-Asian sentiment was. And I had no clue that there were a lot of black people too who were participating in anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian sentiment. Where I grew up, the Asian population was so small. You knew everybody by name. And I observed that too, that the black kids pretty much were like, oh, well, you also are some variation of a person of color. So come sit with us. That, that's what I saw people doing. So I really didn't know how common it was to see that 
conflict between people of color and to see that type of anti-Asian racism among Black people. I hadn't seen it firsthand, but it's undeniable when you're looking at some of these attacks in the news, but it was surprising to me. And I've only yeah. lived in the United States. Yeah. And this comes from this history of us being pitted together. But the, the interesting thing, and this is the conversation that I've been having throughout the pandemic, is that the Black and Asian community, we've always been allies. You know, there's a picture of Yuki, oh God, I can't even say her surname, she's Japanese. And the last person that is holding Malcolm X's head before he died was a Japanese American woman. You know, it wasn't a black woman, wasn't a white woman, wasn't a Latino woman. It was the closest person to him, and it was an Asian woman. And, you know, you look at Martin Luther King, he was always very supportive of the Asian community. You know, he stood with so many black soldiers that, you know, Vietnamese aren't our enemies. It's the racism within America that is, you know, the Black Panther Party, one of the, you know, first and top members who was in a high ranking position was a Japanese American mm. person. And through, you know, the black empowerment movement, you know, it, you know, there was an Asian female leader there. So we can look throughout our history of Asian and black leaders. And I absolutely know if you know, Martin Luther King was alive, he would have stepped up he would, and he probably would have been one of the first civil rights leaders to step up and say something and support the Asian com community. But we've had this rift over the you know, de decades. And this has come from mass media of how different communities are stereotyped and pushed the rise of white nationalism and white supremacy of how Asian people are seen. And, you know, you never hear the real stories i mean in new york right. the group one group that has the highest rate of poverty is the asian community and when you look at senior citizens one of the highest rates of poverty across all senior citizens in the u.s are asian senior citizens i think margaret cho said it recently in an interview which is very telling is that on one hand the asian community is being vilified and attacked and we're asking people to suddenly turn right now within half a second and be our ally, even though they've had this push, a different kind of narrative pushed. And then suddenly they go to Netflix and see Bling Empire. Right. And that's the narrative that has been pushed for decades. But on the other hand, we're asking you to help us because we're in, in, in need. <laughs> so, yeah. So people really aren't getting it. I think the problem is too, people aren't amplifying the voice of enough Asian folks to even know what's really going on. And the suppression in the news to me has been outrageous. Like the only time I'm learning about a new attack is on social media from people who are in the community that's being targeted or who are actively, you know, working with activists. I have not seen any ma major media coverage no, at it's all. And, and that's been difficult of, you know, those that are speaking up have been predominantly Asian high profile figures, but it's like, we need the allies. But the, the biggest issue is, is that this is very reactive at the moment because the hate crimes are happening in real time. So I'm needing you to pivot within half a second. 
But what we really need to do is the changing of hearts on the mind and the groundwork because, you know, if I look particularly at the Black and Asian community, we've had a lot of pain between our communities over the last few decades with different riots and how we've been pitted together. So there's a tremendous amount of healing that we need to do individually, but also together as well. And also to remember what history, what rich history we've had together through the civil human rights movement as well. But that takes time. And at the moment, the Asian community doesn't have that time because we're being attacked in real times. And we're now fighting against this massive stereotype of, you know, Asian people are quiet, we don't need help, we're very wealthy, we don't suffer from poverty because we're always displayed as the good immigrant that's put up on a pedestal to aspire to. And there's also a lot of lack of data as well. It's only really now through the pandemic they're gathering a lot of hate crime data towards the Asian community so they can really track the hate across the nation of where the hotspots are. And also a lot of the crimes aren't being seen as hate crime because Mm. that person has to say something racially motivated to say it's a hate crime. But then when you're dealing with the, you know, elderly Asian people who may not speak English, who have a lack of understanding of English, may not oh, be able to say to, to you report that yeah yeah they just kind of reported well can, can you not see i've got this big you know gash on my heads but you know they may not have been able to understand what the person was saying as as well so it's a difficult moment for our community and i know many people that say the same as you that they haven't heard of these reports and why are they not because they're very serious i mean after what happened to george floyd a few months afterwards, a Filipino man died at home by the same kind of incident. Mm. But it, it didn't get the exposure that the George Floyd case did. And I think people need to realise that our communities may look different. We may have things that are obviously very different within our communities, but what's happening to us is very similar because at the root of it, it's white supremacy of where this is all coming from, of how it kind of separated us apart, pitted us, put Asian people on the pedestal and still kind of, you know, churning, you know, the, the, the winds, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I- it's so true. And then I feel like you, with your work with supporting the LGBTQIA plus community and focusing on trans women's rights too, you see this theme that, once we're all free, then we can relax. But if you're in a group that isn't being targeted at the moment, your work is not done. Because as long as anyone's human rights are up for debate and you can be attacked just for being as you were born, no one is secure. It feels like a lot of people still aren't getting the importance of intersectionality. No, and I think that's the issue as well, because a lot of people are going, well, BLM happened last year. Everyone rallied around this. Now it's kind of the Asian turn. And then other communities are like, oh, I can breathe easily. It's glad it's not me. But it's like, this is not a we're taking it in turns thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and we really do need to understand. And I think 
this is why learning our history is so important because there is no national Asian American history museum in mm. the, the US. You can go to the African American Museum in DC and learn about your history, but there's not the same for the Asian community and they're looking at building a museum in DC. And I think we have to have intersectionality in how we learn our history because you can't learn about Martin Luther King or the Black Panthers or Malcolm X without learning about the Asian civil rights leaders that stood beside them as well. And without learning about other communities that stood there as well. And I think once you understand that, then you need to, then intersectionality becomes a little bit easier. And I think we are really working in our silos at the moment. And there's that, you know, definitely around, you know, trans women's rights in sports, you know, we have siloed that out, that women's rights and trans rights are two different things. But they're, they're definitely... They're the same thing. It seems like it's the misogyny that makes people so hostile toward anyone who wants to do feminine things. So that ends up meaning a lot of people get targeted, even if you're a cis man who is not being masculine in the way that people want you to be, it all is fallout from the misogyny that's everywhere. And I don't know if trans masculine folks are experiencing the same level of abuse or if people are staying under the radar to survive but i would just imagine well from the trans masculine folks that i know personally they have said that the experience of presenting as a man has been a major upgrade as far as public abuse goes yeah and i, I don't know if everyone is experiencing that it could also be related to how people aren't clocking that they're trans maybe that is influencing their experience too but it just really seems like trans feminine people are so hated and abused because people hate women and all things Feminine. Yeah. And it threatens male masculinity as well, because then a man has to question his manliness and his masculinity. And then he questions then his sexuality on top of this. And this is obviously as well, again, being perpetrated via the media. But also when we take it away, it's just continu this continual policing around women. And I think yeah. Serena Williams said it so well that she said you know how I'm policed around my outfit but then the men they take their tops off and rub themselves they're half naked and they're sitting by the courtside and no one's saying anything but dare Serena Williams wears tights because this is what helps her physically because of you know whatever situation she has she has going on what she decides to wear then it's all over the front cover there's so many layers. Can you tell me about what you're working on right now, the project you're focusing most of your energy on now and how the audience can connect to you, support you, what you most would like for us to be doing? Sure. All the conversations that I have around racial equality and equality in general are through sports. Since the pandemic started, it's given me a very special moment to have a conversation with the world because no one needs to fly me anywhere. <laughs> so I'm literally having a conversation with the world. I mean, I'm very thankful. I'm ambassador to five organizations and, and soon in March will be six organizations, mainly sports 
organizations. And so I have this intersectional conversation through the lens of sports, of how we can use sport as a platform for, you know, changing hearts and minds, but also equality. And then I also use this platform to discuss the challenges and barriers that Asian people face in sports and life, because many people don't get to hear from an Asian person that has experienced what I have because Asian people, you know, we're far and few between in terms of sharing our stories in this way. So people don't get to hear that. And I think, you know, the pandemic has given us a very special moment where we can, you know, stop and take stock. And I think we need to really check in with ourselves in terms of the language that we use, our behavior, um, our unconscious bias, as, as well, because, you know, words do hurt. We think about the past year through the Trump administration, how he's just weaponized the Asian community around a virus and how much that's hurting the, our community and the trauma that it's causing. I mean, I find it traumatic when I read about all these reports. People can follow my work on social media at Amazon Letty and they also can find me on www.amazonletty.com as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story because I really doubt that most of my listeners have ever heard of anything this intense and my audience is queer folks of color and still I can't imagine that that many people have ever had a teacher physically assault them and they knew there was no recourse. Like that is, that's next level. I'm glad that you survived and that now you're here to model for the rest of us that we can't be broken and intersectionality is where our energy needs to go because we aren't free until everyone's free. Yes. And, you know, I'm not just one thing. I'm, you know, I'm Asian, I'm queer, I'm an athlete, I'm a, a woman. And when, when we think of, you know, typically about our behavior and policy change, you have to take the whole person into account, not just one thread of who they are. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. That entire conversation was so powerful to me. I am still mad about that eraser. I just can't imagine the flood of stress hormones. You know, when something catches you completely off guard and you don't have the power to defend yourself, it leaves such an impression. You can really hear that years later, the whole experience is so vivid because it was such a trauma. I'm so glad that Amazon was able to make it through that horror and get to a place where she can reclaim her power through sport and through advocacy. Make sure to connect to Amazon and keep up with the work that she's doing and see how you can be part of it. I will have links in the show notes of other organizations that are doing intersectional work in defense of AAPI people. That really is so top of mind right now. Like Amazon said, we're not meant to be taking turns. All of our work should be intersectional 
we need to continue centering the most vulnerable. Another thing that we want to be aware of right now are all of the anti-trans legislation that's in movement right now in the U.S. Even though it can feel overwhelming sometimes, like there's just so much going on that needs to stop, that needs to be changed. But remember, everything that you do, it does make a difference. We can't be too invested in seeing immediately how our action improves things. Just know that it does make a difference. And even if some of our good work doesn't totally play out until after we've left this terrestrial plane, it doesn't matter. Think of all the advocacy work people completed years before you were born that have had a tremendous positive impact on your life. How grateful are you for that work? The work that we are doing now is for the people that come after us, and it's also for our own peace, for our own well-being, knowing that we are making an effort to position ourselves on the right side of history. So there are payoffs in the present, but seeing everything resolved, that unfortunately isn't one we can bank on. But just keep hanging in there. Know that you are not alone. I thank you for listening. And I thank everyone that has been sharing the show. Anytime you like, share, or review the show, you're helping this message reach so many others. I appreciate you, and I will see you next time.